The University of Florida won a basketball game before Christmas. Ah, we do have Florida fans. Now, the most remarkable thing about that game was not that uh, Florida won the game against Jacksonville by 24 points. The most remarkable thing about this game was that a one-armed freshman named Zach Hodgkins scored two points in a Division I basketball game. That's right. Z Zach Hodgkins played and scored with a birth defect missing uh, half of his left arm playing in a bat and he was playing in a basketball game. Now Zach has a history of being quite the basketball player. He was a six foot four phenom in high school averaging 12 points a game as a senior but went on a tear at the end of his senior year averaging 23 points a game all with one arm. Now Zach, you need to know, apparently doesn't want anyone's sympathy. He just wants to be known as a ball player. In fact, he, he likes being uh, in pickup games and going out to uh, the playground or to uh, the gym and uh, be one of the ones who wants to play. And he's usually, though he's always, the last one picked. And then when he plays, he wows everyone and blows them away with his amazing gifts. Behind Zach, of course, are his parents, who fully supported the budding star. and They supported him in times when he would go to AAU, that is kind of club basketball, and he would uh, try and get on teams, but coaches wouldn't even think about him or consider him. They kept encouraging him. They kept providing for him. They kept taking care of him. In fact, sometimes Zach would come home, and he would be so determined to get better because people were saying no to him about playing that he would play for hours and hours on end. His fingers, the ends of his fingers, would be bleeding. He'd come home and his parents would tape up his fingers and attend to him. And you know what he'd do next? He'd go right back out and play some more. Clearly, Zach Hodgkins is doing an amazing thing as a one-armed player in Division I basketball. And behind that, that source of encouragement for him are his parents, the ones who have helped him live out his dream. Well, today in 1 Samuel 1, we're going to look at some parents who helped Samuel, the prophet, as a kid, begin the process of God's plan for his life. And uh, Samuel, you need to know, was, is going to grow up to become a phenom, if you will, as, as a prophet. And we're going to talk more about uh, Samuel as the months go on, because he is the first major hero that shows up in this uh, book of the Bible. Now, you need to know, though, but before this hero comes along, there is the Shiro. The Shiro of Hannah, his mother. And we're going to see today how his parents, particularly his mother, Hannah, um, consecrates, dedicates, commits him to the Lord's service in instructive ways. And so our question today is, how does she do that? How does she consecrate her son to the Lord in his unique role in the, in the church's history? And how do we consecrate the things most important to us to the Lord? Well, there's three ways we're going to talk about it today that Hannah is going to give us a great example for. And the three ways are this. You dedicate your life to someone bigger. You sacrificed your best for someone bigger. And you even sometimes hand over your dreams for someone bigger. Well, let's get into the story. Let's catch up on the backstory for those of you who weren't, weren't here last week. 
Last week we met Samuel's family. His dad, Elkanah, was married to not one but two women, two sister wives, Hannah and Penina. Hannah apparently didn't have children. She was barren for some length of time. Elkanah married another woman, Penina, in order to have children. And of course, we tried to make a case last week that that is actually sin. That's not God's will and how we should do marriage uh, with sister wives. However, they did it functionally. They did it as a pragmatic solution to issues in their time. Their family was, in other words, a mess. Now, Penina went on to have a lot of kids, but Hannah didn't. And the hard part about that is Penina would rub it in with Hannah. She would say little things that would provoke, irritate, bother, yes, deeply hurt uh, Hannah. And so after years of Penina picking away at Hannah, Hannah finally broke. And she prayed to the Lord that he would give her a son whom she would ultimately consecrate to him. She prayed at the main tabernacle where they would go do worship together as a family once a year, where the chief priest of the time, Eli, was hanging out and doing his job. And remember, Eli even agreed with her in prayer for uh, this desire of having a son. And sure enough, Hannah's prayer over the year was heard by God after that, and she had her first son, Samuel whose name means I've asked of the Lord. Now, we're at this place in the story. She's got Samuel, this dream child she's always longed for. And and look at what she does here in our text in verse 21. Verse 21 says, The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now you'd think, after waiting a long time in childlessness, which some people in this room have experienced in real ways, just the ache of that, and you finally get a child, you'd think she'd say, finally I've got my child, let him bring bring him close. Let's keep him close as long as possible. But the funny thing is, Hannah's up to something in this text. She's up to something with her son. So she starts talking about weaning Samuel till he would ultimately be about three years old. That's about the time when uh, Jewish kids were weaned in that culture. And then she talks about how she's going to take him to the presence of the Lord to dwell. The presence she's talking about, that's a technical term, that means the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit coming down on the tabernacle and God dwelling there in the power of the Spirit, in the cloud, if you will. She was talking about taking her son to be a part of the priesthood there with the tabernacle. What is Hannah up to here? Well, three things really can tell us what she is up to in this text. And the first is this. Hannah has made a vow to the Lord in our prior text from last week. And she's committed to keeping it. You might remember she made us a promise last week about Samuel in verse 11b. So turn over to that real quick and look at that with me. She made a promise as she was praying to the Lord in the tabernacle and said basically this, Lord, please give me a child, give me a son in particular. And then it says at the end of, of, of 11, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, what she's doing here is what we call a Nazarite vow. 
a Nazarite vow, which was a particular kind of vow that Blair read about earlier from number six. The Nazarite vow was something a believer in the Old Testament in particular would do uh, to consecrate or to set apart material goods or even a person for the Lord. Again, you can find the, the kind of the details of it in number six. Now, several famous historical Bible figures uh, were Nazarites, some that you may have known if you've read your Bible for any time. You've heard of Samson, you know, the super strong guy with long hair, cut his hair. He had a thing with women, and it got to him after time. Also, not only Samuel, but John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Even the Apostle Paul, if you read Acts 18 and Acts 21, takes these Nazarite vows as temporary vows, temporary vows, regarding how he would follow the Lord in that time. Now, what was unique about this vow? Well, it was a form of self-imposed voluntary discipline to keep their hair uncut. In other words, these guys, uh, back in that time, they were called the long-haired champions of Israel. Now, we might call them today uh, that they look like the Duck Dynasty guys with long beards and long hair. They were also to abstain from uh, touching dead bodies, eating unclean foods, and they were teetotalers, never drinking wine. Samuel was to become a teetotaling Duck Dynasty prophetic dude. The second thing that Hannah is up to in our text here uh, that it about, is about Hannah's vow is she's committed to keeping it. That's because the third commandment, if you recall in the Ten Commandments, uh, says you shall not take the, Lord of the, Lord your, the name of the Lord your God in vain. That command covers all kind of major promises where we invoke God's name. Hannah, in other words, is obedient to God and has the integrity to come through on her commitment, her promise to invoking God's name in prayer. Now, a really quick application of this for us is that whenever you make a vow or a promise, especially invoking God's name, you need to keep it. You need to be diligent in keeping that vow. In fact, I would tell you this, Jesus talks about vows in uh, Matthew 5, where he talks about, uh, instead of being so rash about taking vows and making resolutions and promises, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Meaning, only on rare occasions do you invoke God's name and take a vow. So the third thing that we need to consider about how Hannah, what Hannah is up to and how she is acting this way is not only that she's keeping a vow that she had promised about her son as a Nazarite, but she fulfills the vow with planning. With planning. If you, pl if you make a vow, you need to plan on how you're going to keep it. You better do it with, in other words, ready, aim, fire, not ready, fire, aim. Hannah knew that she was going to give Samuel over to the tabernacle service with Eli and all the priests, so she holds off and doesn't feed him, or really, excuse me, has him weaned after three years, so that when she takes him and dedicates him in, in the tabernacle service, uh, he, won't be, he won't be high maintenance, for lack of a better word. The pre he can eat the food that the priests are eating, and he can participate 
in life, even as a three or four-year-old. What is this vow-making business? How does it affect us? Well, we all take vows. Everybody does. And as Christians, we take vows of membership. You know, you've seen people come down here and I ask them questions, and they take those vows of membership, and you've done that. Uh, those of you who are members of our church. And here's what that means. If you promise to keep the peace and purity of the church, you need to dwell on your role with that. You need to dwell on your role with that. It also means that when we take vows, we can even take vows that are, have such weightiness that they affect our whole lives really for the rest of our lives. I'll give you an example. Marriage. Marriage vows. When you invoke God's name at your wedding... For those of you who are married, that's serious business. It's not, oh, this is a happy moment, I just kind of give God a little, a little fist bump in the process. It's actually a serious moment to invoke God's name. And here's why. Because you're invoking his help. It's not just saying, hey, God, I want you to overlook this. I need your help. In fact, you see that here even in this text, this kind of interesting aspect of taking vows that we need God's help. You might remember here over in our text, Hannah gives up her only son, which takes some serious resolution. And Elkanah says in verse 23, may the Lord establish his word. It's not Hannah, may you establish your word, which is the way we usually think about our vows. I got to pull this off. No, no, no. This is his way of saying, Hannah, you've got to come to grips with I can, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, not my own strength. May God establish his word in you in this commitment with our child. Let me put it this way. When we make commitments of any significant way, God must empower us with the gospel and the Holy Spirit to stay the course in marriage, in other binding relationships where we invoke God's name. So, summarize all of these things that Hannah's up to. When you dedicate yourself to something, dedicate yourself to someone bigger than you to help you. Well, Hannah does that in our text. She does it for herself, and she does it for her son Samuel. And then the day came, in our text, when she actually hands him over to Eli and those who are leading in the tabernacle service. Look at verse 24 of our text. It says this, When she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Can you imagine this? You go years. It could be decades of waiting for a kid you have the kid, you enjoy him for three measly years, and you take him as a toddler to the tabernacle to put him in the priestly service. I got to tell you, as a, as a father, a husband, a pastor, a whole lot, this is sacrifice on another level. This is sacrifice we're not familiar with in our time not only that, she not only brings her son, she brings all kinds of stuff with her. Did you notice she, she brings a bushels of flour, a skin of wine? That's up to six gallons of wine. That's a lot. 
And she brings what it says is a three-year-old bull. Probably the Hebrew translation is actually three bulls, which might correspond with uh, the boy's three years of living. Folks, this was a super generous offering to God. And it was costly. You know, imagine giving not only your son, but here's $25,000, $50,000 to go with him. It would be a hit of significant way. And you've got to ask, what, what is she doing? Why is she so generous? Let me tell you what it is. It's gratitude. This is a thank offering. It's gratitude for God answering her prayers and giving her the gift of a son. She keeps her Nazarite vow, dedicates Samuel, and she does it with a depth of thanks that really is instructive to all of us. This is what it means to be a cheerful giver, not a teeth-gritting, duty-only giver. When you give to the Lord in the Spirit, it creates a longing to give more. As you give thanks for what you have, you'll give up more. There's a combination that goes with that. Thanksgiving yields generosity. And it just is a feedback loop. More thanksgiving yields more generosity. Thanksgiving yields more generosity. And that's what's going on with her. They go together. Now, at this point in the text, I want to ask an honest question of our text. If you give me a little side note for a moment. Hannah brings Samuel to Eli for service. And many call this a text of baby dedication. And, and we would ask, is this a proof text that we should dedicate babies in the church? Many churches don't baptize children like we do, but they do dedicate their children. Well, here's what we would say, and here's what we believe. Baby dedication for us happens at baptism with our kids. In fact, you don't want to claim this as a model for what you do in church. Why? Because this is a Nazarite vow. Are you ready to commit your child to full-time ministry looking like a, a teetotaling Doug Dynasty dude with a prophetic bent? This is not a model for everybody to follow in practice, though certainly we appreciate the principle of committing our kids in this way. That brings us to another important question. What was Hannah dedicating her Nazarite son to? What exactly was she saying by doing this? Well, here's what we know about Samuel, right? And what's coming. Samuel was the last judge before the kings. Samuel would be a Levitical priest. He would be a prophet. He would... Uh, bring the word of the Lord, and he would become Israel's kingmaker with Saul and, of course, with David. Samuel, in other words, would be this jack-of-all-trades of all the biblical offices of prophet, priest, and king. Now, something else you should know about Nazarites is this, is by their virtue of their not cutting their hair or not drinking wine or eating grapes and all the other things they wouldn't do their whole life was meant to be a countercultural word picture against the culture around them. You saw, you saw it with Samson, with the Philistines. You saw it with John the Baptist, with the uh, corrupt Jewish leadership of the time. They were living examples of Christian protest against culture and even religious culture in its time. 
Their lives, in other words, were meant to be a self-disciplined, sacrificial word picture to the world that proclaimed something's broken. Something isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so the Nazarites would give up good things to make a statement of what it means to follow the Great One. Samuel, of course, would go on, as you'll see in the rest of this book, a contrast to Eli's sons, who were the corrupt leaders of the time. John the Baptist would be the shocking countercultural voice in the wilderness who would both condemn the moral corruption of leaders in his times as well as announce the coming of the one real leader. No one can be countercultural without a sacrifice of thanks. Because being countercultural is hard. It's costly. You must start sacrifice with thanks, understanding grace as it has come to you. Now here's what we are called to be and to do relative to this unique text. We are not Nazarites, and we don't commit our kids to Nazarite vows. But as God's people, we are holy. We are holy. We are saints. Every single one of us who call on Jesus as our one true Lord and Savior. If you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then God is sanctifying you to be fundamentally different in how you handle life. And it'll be a way that doesn't seem normal because it's countercultural in what Jesus wants us to do. I'm not talking that we're supposed to be weird different, but we are to be different in our character and how we respond in circumstances and even in our values. God says in his word, be holy as I am holy. Uh, this takes us to a place where we understand that sacrifice and even sacrificing our best for someone bigger has a larger purpose. So, Hannah sacrifices her best in Samuel to Eli and at around three years of age, and at the same time, she proclaims God's glory. She starts worshiping along with Eli in verses 26. Look real quick at that. She said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. <laughs> Here's one of those cool moments. You know, she, she hasn't been to uh, basically the tabernacle for three or four years, and she shows up, and she's got the son. And you remember the last time she met Eli, Eli thought she was drunk and said, Woman, you need to stop drinking. And she said, No, 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 I'm not drinking. I'm just heaving and just uh, disappointment and, and my heartache because I'm barren and I keep getting oppressed. And, and uh, so what happens is she shows up for, here three or four years later with Samuel and says, Hey, remember me? I got a child. God answered our prayer. You remember how we prayed for that together, Eli? Now, the Hebrew in this text is really interesting. It says this. It says something along the lines that, of the language of asking all the time that you see in the word petition here. It says, the Lord gave me, uh, gave me my asking, which I asked, and I have given back what I asked. Giving back what she asked. Lending him, that is, Samuel, to the Lord. She's so determined to give him 
to the Lord. She says, I lent him twice in our text in verse 28. Well, what can we glean from this as well? Well, in our time, we are blown about by the winds of every experience, every emotion, every idea, every cultural movement. But there's one thing that we need in our time, Christian resolve. Christian resolve. We need God's work in our hearts and the power of the Spirit to do His will by listening to His Word and living in prayer. The business of asking and receiving with thanksgiving actually feeds your resolve. If you struggle with falling off the wagon with your sin, if you struggle with uh, going off on your own way on regular, thing, uh, regular experiences against God or away from God as a prodigal, start praying. Engage God personally. Listen to His Word. Let Him draw you in. That's where resolve is built up. You know, sometimes, I've got to tell you, though, with resolve, you've got to be clear on who you're being resolved with. Sometimes we'll make a resolve with the Lord that actually He didn't actually ask us to resolve. Is what you resolve based in Scripture? Second, sometimes, sometimes uh, we take a good, um, a good idea of being resolved and we build it into something that's way bigger than it needs to be. We live in a world, and I fear this is our biggest issue, where we're told not to resolve and to change our minds all the time. We're in a world that pressures us to move from one thing to another. But what we need is to keep going to God and listen to Him in answered prayer. Look for answered prayer. Watch and pray is what Jesus says. Pray and watch on a regular basis. Because your resolve will be tested. Your resolve will be tested. Your resolve to follow Jesus will be tested. Your resolve to be in your marriage will be tested. Your resolve with your kids, your job, everything you have in life will be tested. And you can't overcome that on your own. It's in the reliance upon the Holy Spirit in seeking God that you actually encounter resolve. Hannah out of her resolve, hands her dream over to God. That's what she does in her text. She gave back to God what, was, what she had asked of Him. What else can we glean from this? Well, obviously, we parents or even friends need to hold on to the gift of people with an open hand. Parents, our kids are on loan from God. Our job is to love them deeply, point them to Christ, disciple them, reach them the best we can, but there really is a point where you've got to let go. You've got to let them learn, even on their own with Jesus. Let them struggle with Jesus, because struggle is where you grow. Our children are the Lord's. Our friends are the Lord's. Our family belongs to the Lord's. Our very lives belong to the Lord's. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This giving up of what we dearly love for Christ, handing over our dreams, is no small task. No small task indeed. And some of us here would wonder, why in the world would you do that? If you work for something, pray for something, get that something you prayed for and worked for, why would you give it up? 
Well, the first thing I'd say is if you're an unbeliever today, really wrestling with Christianity, you need to ask if you work for something and hope for something and eventually get it, how much does it really satisfy your soul? How much will it satisfy your soul? And for how long will it satisfy your soul? Experience shows indeed that the tighter you grip onto something, the more it'll fade away. Second reason, Jim Elliott, uh, a missionary who reached out in the 20th century to uh, the Aka Indians of South America, says this. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. The principle of surrender proves that we actually gain more riches when we give up something or someone we love to the Lord for a greater good. Third, and this is the gospel, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave. Romans 8 says it this way, He who did not spare his own son but gave himself, gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? The number one reason we hand over our dreams to God is God has already done that for us in Christ. God has already given up his son so that we could have life and have it Abundantly, And here's the irony of the gospel. Jesus said it himself. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ and even for his gospel, you will gain real life. This is the kingdom principle. That giving up is actually gaining. That giving away is actually life. How about you? Are you hanging on to something or someone so tight that you can't let it go? Maybe it's time to give up your dream. I don't know if you've heard of the name Bill Havens. He lived back in the 1920s. He was a world-renowned canoe paddler. Now, canoe paddling was a, was a, a growing sport in the 1924 Olympics. And in 1923, Bill Havens was the undefeated and untied paddling champion. He not only made the U.S. Olympic team, he was the odds-on favorite to get the gold medal at the 24 Olympics. While training for the Olympics, he found out some information, though. He found out that his wife was expecting their second child, and that the second child would be born around the time of the Olympics. Havens had a decision to make. Would he go to the Olympics and just risk his wife having a child on her own? Or would he go, would he stay home with her? To everyone's shock, the odds-on gold favorite in canoe paddling, Bill Havens gave up his spot on the team and stayed home with his wife. He gave up a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and experience to be there when his child was born. And so sure enough, later that summer, four days after the canoe paddling event 
in Helsinki, Finland, oh, excuse me, in, excuse me, Paris, the 1924 Paris Olympics, Bill's son, Frank, was born. Bill was there with him when it happened. That's not the end of the story, though. Over the next two decades, Bill poured himself into his two sons, Bill Jr. and Frank, so much so that those two sons became two of the best canoe paddlers in the actual world. 28 years after Frank's birth, after the Paris Olympics, Frank, Bill Sr.'s son, was at the Helsinki, Finland Olympics, representing the United States. Frank would go on, that is the son Frank, would go on and send a telegram to his dad after the major canoeing event, and here's what he said. Dear Dad, thanks for waiting around for me to be born in 1924. I'm coming home with the gold medal that you should have won. God gave up his son that you and I might have life. He gave him over to death that we might have real life by giving up. Now it's our turn. Don't try to gain your life by hanging on tightly. Lose your life. Lose your biggest dream. And you'll actually find Jesus right there. Let's pray. I'd like to ask the elders of Church of the Redeemer to come forward. As they come forward, we're about to enter in what we call family time at Redeemer. For those of you newer to Redeemer, it is a time where we actually um, talk about real things, important things that affect the whole ministry of the church. And today, I have an announcement for you. Brothers and sisters of Church of Redeemer, I come to you today with an important announcement that will affect the life and ministry of our church in significant ways. After 14 years of service to this wonderful church, the Lord is leading me to resign as the lead pastor of Redeemer. After months of prayer, discussion with elders, counsel with fellow pastors, and dialogue with Elizabeth and the kids, it is clear God is moving me away from this church to a new call. My last Sunday here will be January 31st, when I will preach and serve communion. At the moment, I do not have another call in the waiting, though I have begun conversations with various churches and networks around the PCA. I will be taking a temporary break as rest from ministry while seeking the Lord about my family's next work in the kingdom. Of course, there are reasons for my departure, and they are several fold. First, retrospectively speaking, the last few years have been very difficult for me in ministry. Working in a pastorally understaffed environment with major changes and even significant conflicts has often left me in a state of fatigue and even burnout. Many or most of you have likely observed my struggles with fatigue. Secondly, prospectively speaking, the elders of Redeemer have recently recognized a growing contrast between my ministry gifting and the ongoing needs of Redeemer. No doubt, I have struggled in my, with my limits in recent years. When the elders speak together, I listen to their initiative and urgings about the best for the future of Redeemer.
Third, from a personal calling point of view, I believe my time at Redeemer is coming to a close. And while I didn't envision leaving in this context and way, it is clear that the Lord is saying, it's time to go. This, of course, will be shocking news to many or most of you. And there will be many questions from you. Let me assure you, there is no scandal here. My family is doing well, thanks be to God. Some of you may wonder why now. It has become clear to me that Redeemer's needs are too great for me not to give undivided attention to the Lord's work here. So it is best for me to move on, rest, explore, and pray through my next call while your elders and deacons lead you through the next stage of the church's life. Regarding my family, Elizabeth and I are both sad about leaving Redeemer, but we do have a growing excitement about the possibilities of ministry for the next 20 years, God permitting. When I consider the very heart of the situation, it would be best to say that this seems to be a part of God's very strange working and sovereign hand in my call to ministry. For those who have further questions about this news, I would urge you to pray first and then talk with your shepherding elder. There will be an informational meeting next Sunday after church on the 17th where the elders and I will address any common questions the best we can. Finally, as a congregation, you have a distinct role in this calling process. On Sunday, January the 24th, the Presbytery that we partner with as a church will conduct a congregational meeting to dissolve the relationship between me and this church. While you should vote your conscience as members, I urge you to approve that dissolution. It has truly been an honor to serve at Redeemer for these past years. And what is most moving to me is how the Lord allowed me to be here, a sinner saved by grace, serving you with the gospel. Our Lord Jesus is on the throne ruling. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Do not be afraid, little ones. Our sovereign lover is loving you and my family right now. Let us rest in his mysterious and sovereign plan, waiting on a greater glory, with deep affection, and even with hope in Jesus, I speak to you. I know many of you are probably shocked, but it's okay. I would be too. As you have questions, as you have feelings, as you have thoughts, let me urge you, talk to your elders. Here they are, right here. These are the men you need to talk to. They want to minister to you. They want to talk with you. And it'd be good for you to talk with them. So talk with them. If you want to talk to me, just remember, there's only so much I can say, and I'm a mess right now. <laughs> but God is good. It's time. And I think the Lord's calling us away. Trent, I'm sorry, but now you have to transition us, brother. <laughs> it's all yours, my brother. <laughs>